So let's turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, 25 through 29. Let's read that passage. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life, which we've just celebrated this morning with our communion. These things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. Oh, nobody would ever do that. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears... Oh, Jesus isn't really coming again, is he? When he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming... If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Let's pray. Father, bless the study today, and we pray if there's any human way possible that we could get through the whole thing, that would be great. But if not, we just ask you to guide us through that portion that you would have us cover today. Speak to our hearts, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the promise he has promised us. Now, there are a lot of, it's funny, he talks about the deception and so forth, and there's a lot of folks out there that are going to tell you, well, the promise of God is prosperity, that you can be wealthy and rich in this life if you just name it and claim it. You can have perfect health. You don't ever have to be sick. And if you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith. Blah, 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 stinking blah. The promise, folks, is eternal life. That goes beyond this present life. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. No matter what we say or what we do, eventually these physical bodies are going to wear out, break down, and they're going to die. And by the way, remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? The whole idea that God's promises revolve around the temporary things of this world is ridiculous. Because when you die, it doesn't matter how poor or how rich you are, all that matters is where are you going? This is why we have to be in the Word constantly because we're bombarded daily with all kinds of baloney. And unfortunately, a lot of it comes from within the church. This is the promise He has promised us. Not perfect health in this life. Not wealth in this life. Again, the Bible says if you work hard and you are a good steward, yeah, you can prosper in this life. But that's not the focal point. John is saying, this is the reward the Lord has in store. And what was the key word last week in the message? Remain. The name of the game is remain. This is the reward the Lord has in store for those who remain. For those who see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. That truth. Not what everybody else says, what everybody else tells you. The true gospel that faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And what is that promise? Eternal life. John is reminding us that anything and everything we go through in this life in order to remain. It's easy to remain when everything's going great, isn't it? You know when a lot of people start to fall away? When it's not going so great. And by the way, for 99.9% .9 of the people on this planet, sooner or later, it's not going to go so great. You know what I'm talking about? And that's the real challenge. 
This promise is for those who remain. John's reminding us that anything and everything we go through in this life in order to remain is worth it because at the end of the day, we get to live with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit forever in paradise. One more important point this morning. There are some who acknowledge the Father and the Son. Because remember we learned last week, if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. It's a package deal. You can't just have some generic, you know, ambivalent belief in some kind of a higher power out there somewhere. It's very specific. The God of all creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, and His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, who was born into this world 2,000 years ago and died on the cross for your sins. There are some who acknowledge the Father and the Son with their words, but deny Him with their actions, with their lifestyle. Matthew 15, 8, Jesus quoting from the Old Testament These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And by the way, the word Lord means master. When you call him your Lord, you're acknowledging that he is your master, which means he's in charge, he's the boss, he calls the shots. And if that's not the truth about you and how you live your life, then he's really not your Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of his Father in heaven. You say, well, I don't always know what God's will is. Well, there's one really good way to find out, and that's to be in the Scriptures, in the Word of God. Because the Bible basically covers any issue you could ever come up against. Do you know that? Oh, gee, I don't know. Should I sleep with my boyfriend? Well, if you don't already know what you should know, the Bible will tell you. Gee, you think it'd be okay if I stole 20 bucks from my mother's purse? I don't know. Should I do it? The Bible will tell you, right? Whatever it is, the Bible will tell you if you read it, but then you have to obey it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Obedience. Jesus teaches us that the true mark and sign of a true genuine disciple of Christ is obedience to God. And that comes primarily by obeying his word because that is his revealed truth to us. Matthew 24, 11. Then many false prophets will arise up in the last days. Matthew 24 is an end times, last days passage. Again, over and over again, we're warned. John just warned us this morning about deception. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And by the way, a false prophet isn't necessarily somebody who stands up on a soapbox or gets in front of a crowd of people. A false prophet basically is anyone who says that which is contrary to the truth of God's word. Get it? It's not really an official title or position it's a spirit as john's been talking to us about the spirit of antichrist many false prophets will rise up and deceive many and because lawlessness will abound do you think we might be now in an you know i shared many years ago chuck missler came and spoke in our church he's with the lord now we miss him when we were over in the other building our sanctuary was in the other building how many of you remember when chuck missler came 
But it's been at least 10 years ago, if not more, that Chuck Missler identified the time that we're living in as the age of deception. And then I took it a step further and I said, we're now in the age of insanity, which I really think is absolutely true. But here's another aspect of the time that we're living in. We are in the age of lawlessness. You know, I try to be a pretty good boy with regard to the speed limits. I'll fudge by maybe no more than five miles per hour. I don't know. <laughs> but what's really frustrating to me is I'll be driving five miles over and thinking, okay, that's, he shouldn't do any more than that. And then some guy comes up behind me going about 90 miles an hour. He just wants to blow you off the road. And I mean, there's people all over the place like that. And I'm thinking, nobody has any regard whatsoever anymore for the law, for the speed limit. They just do whatever they want. And it's not just true with driving and speed limits. It's true with just about everything in our world today. Today we live in a time, there, you know why? Because once our nation deviated from following the Word of God, you know our basic laws are built upon the Scriptures. Once we started not, for example... I do believe that uh, that Gavin Newsom, the governor, flaming liberal governor of California. Are you shocked that California has a flaming liberal governor? He just ended capital punishment. God forbid that somebody like a Charlie Manson should be actually executed, right? Which he didn't. He died in prison. He was never executed. You see, when people realize, if I kill that person, they're going to kill me, that's a deterrent. Will it stop it completely? No. But when you stop enforcing the laws, then you come into an age and an era of lawlessness. And then people are shocked because everybody's doing lawless behavior. Again, we talk about logic, reason, rationality, common sense has pretty much all gone out the window. It would be so easy to get it back if people would just walk in obedience to the truth of God's word. Jesus says in the last days, lawlessness will abound. And because of that, the love of many will grow cold. And see, that's the devil's game plan. The more this lawlessness increases, the harder people's hearts become. And if, again, the love of many will grow cold. Only those who know God, who know Jesus Christ can never really hope to have true love, agape love, unconditional love. And so the warning, the sad warning here really is that the believers, the ones who should be abounding in love, because of the lawlessness, we face this challenge of not allowing our hearts to get hardened and not allowing our love to grow cold. Because we are God's representatives here upon the earth, and if we can't share the love of God, what hope is there? But he who endures, here it is again, you could translate it, perseveres, stands firm, or remains. He who endures to the end shall be saved. Is that because you have to work for your salvation? No. That means if you're truly born again, if you're a true disciple of Christ, you will endure, you will remain, you won't turn to the right, you won't turn to the left, you won't look back, no matter what happens. And this is the whole purpose of John's letter of 1 John. 
to do all he can to make sure his dear children, little children, God's children, remain in the truth and receive their and our eternal reward. Verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. You suppose... <laughs> now, I don't get tired of hearing it, but I suspect there were, are some, and this is why it's more popular just to take a verse here and a verse there and make a nice message out of it. God forbid we should actually go through the Bible verse by verse because we might hear things we don't want to hear. Do you notice this word deceive keeps popping up again and again and again? Are you sick of hearing it? I don't want to hear that word anymore. Deceive. I felt like that banana slug on that public service announcement. I'm a banana slug, Stephen. You ever heard that? Yeah. <laughs> I just felt like the banana slug. Deceive. I'm here to deceive you, Stephen. I've talked about this before. Matthew 24, Jesus gives multiple warnings. And I've said this more than once. The number one sign of the last days will be global deception. Get it? And now it's possible to have global deception because of the internet, right? Satellite communication, cell phones, you name it. The latest and greatest deception can make its way all around the planet in a matter of minutes. And so many people's lives are so tied into social media, the internet, and so forth, that they'll jump on it in a heartbeat. The NIV says, I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Now back at the very first verse of this chapter, when we began the chapter, we read, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Now he's saying, these things I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. John makes it very clear the purposes for which he is writing this letter. And another thing to note here is that already at the end of the first century, men were coming into the church, women too, I suppose, with the intent and purpose of leading God's dear children or little children away from the truth about God and His Son. It's been going on for 2,000 years. The big difference is, in the last days, it's going to be multiplied and magnified all over the globe via the internet, via satellite communications, television, radio, you name it. And John couldn't be everywhere at once, so it was necessary for him to write to the believers whose faith was being assaulted in the hope of protecting them from deception. Notice it says, trying to deceive you, which implies intent. But you'll hear people say, well, it's just like, you know. in other words, you know, and I've had people get mad and leave the church because I've been critical of Joel Osteen and Rick Warren and these other guys who do the very thing I'm talking about here this morning. They don't give any in-depth expository Bible teaching. They take a verse here and there, one that they like, and they turn it into a nice, warm, fuzzy message so people will love them and want to come to the church and give them their money. That's basically it in a nutshell. Do you get that? I would probably have a much larger church if I did that. 
He's so negative. It's just all doom and gloom. Well, it's not doom and gloom for you and I, but as I pointed out at the beginning of the message, our hope doesn't lie in this world and the things of this world, in the temporary. Our hope lies in eternity. And to encourage believers to look for their hope, their fulfillment, their joy in the things of this world, to me, that's blasphemous. You're totally misrepresenting God when you do that. Sure, there are a lot of wonderful, encouraging promises in the Word of God, but again, they have to do with the spiritual, with the eternal. And there are some for this life, but again, Jesus' focus when He was here on earth, God's focus is on the eternal, not the temporary. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, if only for this life do we have hope in Christ, then we're to be pitied above all people. If the only thing we have to look forward to is what we can get here and now as Christians, we might not, well not even be Christians because it has to do with eternity. When other people are dead and suffering in hell for eternity, we're going to be with God. That's what it's all about. Well, but his or her intentions were good. That's what you hear people say. Well, you're being too hard on them. Their intentions are good, really? Because John says they're trying to deceive you. And as I said last week, the most effective deceiver is the one who is self-deceived. The one who can lie and believe they're telling the truth. But they're trying. And remember many years ago, Hal Lindsey, how many of you have heard of Hal Lindsey? He's been around a long time. He was kind of the granddaddy of the, the end times movement, prophecy and so forth wrote the book, The Late Great Planet Earth, back in the 70s, early 70s, major worldwide bestseller. I remember Hal Lindsey in one of his books that I read many years ago. It might have been Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. He wrote that one too. He said, hell will be filled with people who have good intentions. And you know, it's a sad thing, but I was just thinking about this the other day. Sometimes it seems like the nicest people you meet aren't the believers. And the reason for that is they feel like they've got to work their way to heaven if there is a heaven. But sometimes we rest on our laurels, we take our salvation for granted, and we don't always behave the way we should because we're not worried about going to hell. We know we've been forgiven, we know we're saved, and so we take liberty with that, which is not right. But then you find non-believers who sometimes seem to be much nicer than us believers who sometimes act like big babies, right? Hell will be filled with people who have good intentions. Good intentions won't get you to heaven. Only the blood of Christ will get you to heaven. And then people will say, well, how, how do I lead him or her to Jesus if I just cut them off? Well, actually, in some cases, you don't. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them... You may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwrecked. So in some translations it says they've shipwrecked their faith. Uh, you don't come back from a shipwreck. A shipwreck is usually permanent. The ship is wrecked, it's done, it's over, it ain't going to sail no more. Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
How do I lead him or her to Jesus if I just cut them off? Well, sometimes, like Paul did, you don't. You turn them over to Satan and let him deal with them. That sounds harsh, but it happens to be in the Bible. You can pray for them. 2 Timothy 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith. It's, we, we don't know for sure if it's the same Alexander. It could be. Did me much harm, Paul says. This guy opposed Paul in his ministry. May the Lord repay him according to his works. Paul didn't say, I'm going to repay him. He didn't do a Benny Hinn and say, I'm going to get my Holy Ghost machine gun. Take that guy down. The Lord will repay him. You deal with him, Lord. He's yours. You also must be aware of him. Beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. When somebody is deliberately trying to deceive, your first concern is not, well, how can I lead them to Jesus? No. It's how to beware of them because they're poisonous, they're vicious. 2 John 1, 9 and 10. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. I remember Pastor Chuck using this verse many years ago and talking about how, sadly, now I mentioned last week the number one target for cult groups is immature, untrained believers. People who don't know the word, they don't have a strong relationship with God, they believe, but they're vulnerable to deception. And I remember Pastor Chuck talking about this happening with people when the Jehovah's Witnesses would come to their door and their fleshly compassion would kick in. Not a godly compassion, but just their own fleshly compassion they would be concerned with this person, how sad they're in this cult group. I want to win them to Christ. But instead what happens is they win the weak believer over to their false belief system. And so Chuck said, don't talk to them. That sounds so mean, so harsh, so unloving. No, it's actually biblical. Do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares his evil deeds. Interesting, isn't it? See, there's a difference between our human fleshly compassion and a godly spiritual compassion. Godly spiritual compassion is mixed with wisdom, discernment, insight. And like Jesus told his disciples, if they don't receive your peace, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. But the devil knows how to play on our weaknesses. He knows how to tug at our heartstrings and suck us into situations we should never get ourselves into. Verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. Now, in the New American Standard Bible, this verse starts with the words, As for you, dear children, true believers, in contrast with the ones who are trying to lead you astray, as for you... The anointing which you have received, and we talked about this anointing a couple of weeks ago, it's not the anointing to make people fall over. It's the anointing to know the truth from deception. The anointing which you receive from him abides in you. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, if you're born again by the Spirit of God, then you have that discernment, that anointing within you, but you have to utilize it. The anointing of the Holy Spirit enabling us to discern truth from error. 1 John 2.20, you have an anointing, from the Holy One, 
and you know all things. And you do not need that anyone teach you. Now, let's clarify this, because if you just take this at a surface reading, you think, then why do we even know that we need to go to church? I don't need a teacher. The qualifier here is anyone other than those men that are called and, and women and acknowledged by the local church as God-ordained pastor teachers. Ephesians 4.11, He, Jesus Christ, Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, and that's considered a hyphenated function within the church. Pastor slash teacher. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So John is not saying that we should not submit ourselves to godly biblical teachers who are teaching the truth of God's word. But again, we have to exercise that discernment. 1 Timothy 5.17, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. Teaching of doctrine. But what he's saying is we don't need these fake, phony preacher teachers coming with a different message, not teaching the truth, not speaking the truth. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You should be able to discern whether somebody is truly teaching the truth of God's Word or just their own spiel. The New American Standard Bible says this, 1 Timothy 5.17, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So although God uses human teachers to help us understand His Word better and to prepare us for works of service, as we just saw here in Ephesians chapter 4, He has also promised to give us His Holy Spirit to guide us into all truth. John 16, 13. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, Jesus said, i got to go away, but I'm going to send you the Comforter, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, to live inside of you. And when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will guide you if you allow Him. If you yield your life over to the Spirit of God and you're willing to yield yourself to Him and submit yourself to Him and let Him take you wherever He will. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. You see, there's, it's interesting because we have the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, but there actually is a chain of command within the Trinity. The Son is always submissive to the Father, and the Holy Spirit is always submissive to the Son. Whatever he hears, he will speak. So the Holy Spirit living in us speaks to our hearts and minds that which the Father and the Son speak to him. And again, our number one source is the Scriptures, the Holy Bible. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And again, we have one-third of all Scripture is prophecy. And if we will listen, God will tell us. He's clearly speaking to us and showing what is to come. Nobody should be caught off guard. And yet many, sadly, even within the church, don't want to hear about prophecy, don't want to hear about end times, don't want to hear about the second coming. All they want to focus on is the here and now. And as we've already demonstrated here this morning, it's not about the here and now. It's about eternity. I mean, we do live in the here and now. And Jesus said, take one day at a time. Tomorrow, today has enough problems of its own. Gee, Jesus, what a negative statement. 
Really, Jesus said negative things? No, he was just speaking the truth. See, today the truth is considered negative, right? To be positive is just a lie all the time. Say what people want to hear. That's positive and upbeat. But if you speak the truth, that man, that's negative. And this modern, popular, fake gospel that's going out all over the world would have people to believe that all you have to do is just believe in Jesus. Rick Warren says, invite him into your heart. He doesn't talk about sin. He doesn't talk about confession or repentance. And so we've got a whole new generation of Christians rising up who don't think they have to change. Whatever you were doing before you were a believer, and most likely it was not something good, right? You don't have to stop doing that. You can just live your life however you want. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. But to truly believe in Jesus means you believe he's everything he says he is. You believe everything that he's accomplished. He says he's the one and only son of God. He says he's the savior of the world. He says he died on the cross for your sins. But if you don't have to worry about your sins, why did he have to die? And if you don't have to change, if you can just be the same old vile sinner you've always been, and that's more, that's more hate speech, by the way. That's more negativity. That guy's disgusting. I'm never going back there again. He called me a vile sinner. I'm not a vile sinner. I'm a good person. Really? The Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. All of our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. And you're going to tell me you're a good person? No, you're not. And neither am I. But no preacher is willing to tell people that today. And if you believe you're a good person, you don't need to confess your sins. You don't need to repent. And by the way, you're not really going to get saved. It's a false gospel. And millions of people are being sucked into it. And that the devil just loves it. It's all about this deception John's warning against. John 16, 13, When he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. It goes right back to that anointing John's been talking about. We don't need any flamboyant, self-promoting, horn-swoggling bamboozlers coming into the church trying to rewrite the Scriptures and reinvent Christianity, and that's exactly what's happening today. We don't need none of that. And then he says, you will abide in him if you remain in the truth. To live in Christ, to abide in Christ, is to remain in the truth. If you depart from the truth, you're no longer abiding. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and again, I, in a lot of these types of churches, there's not a whole lot of emphasis on in-depth Bible teaching and Bible study. It's more about social action, warm, fuzzy feelings, and so forth. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, the Word of God lives in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. Well, that hasn't worked in my life. I sure have a lot of unanswered prayers. Well, the thing is, if you abide in Christ and His words abide in you, then you're going to be praying the right kind of prayers. When he talks about you will ask what you desire, your desires will be godly desires. They're being placed in your heart and mind because you're abiding in Christ and His word is abiding in you. 
I wonder how many believers, and I'm just, just as guilty as anybody else, one of the most wonderful godly desires that we could ever have would be to lead as many people to Christ as possible, wouldn't it? But the minute people read that thing about desire, they're probably thinking about a husband or a wife, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a new car, right? That's my desire. See, that's not what he's talking about. Would to God that we all had a burning desire to win the lost. Like I said, I'm just as guilty as you guys. Just because I'm a preacher, just because I'm standing up here teaching you the Word of God, doesn't mean that I have the burning desire that I should have. We all should have a stronger desire to win people to Christ. A stronger desire to help protect people from deception, just like what John is writing here about. But do we have a greater desire than that to not offend people? Is our greater desire to, to have everybody like us? Oh, Lord, I just want people to like me. Well, when they wind up in hell because you didn't tell them the truth, they're not going to like it too much. <laughs> so you might as well plan and prepare for that. Verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, not if he appears, well, just in case he does come back. No. When he appears. What does that tell us? He's coming. He's coming. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Well, how could that possibly happen? I thought I was forgiven. Why would I be ashamed? Why would I be embarrassed? Abide, continue in him, continue in the true Jesus as revealed to us through the God-breathed scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the Apostles' Doctrine. Don't fall for any different Jesus or new Jesus no matter how tantalizing or appealing it might seem. The new improved Jesus for the 21st century, the millennial Jesus. 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4. Paul says, I fear. More negativity. What's the matter with you, Paul? You're not supposed to have fear. Why do, we just need to have a new Bible and we get rid of all these negative words. Don't you think? I fear. Lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Folks, that's happening in spades today. People who identify as believers, followers of Christ, they're being corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. That's man's forte. To take the simple down-to-earth message of the gospel and twist it in so many directions it doesn't even make sense anymore. That's the human forte to do that. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, ooh, Jesus calling, hello, let's do lunch, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul's, and this is the first century, folks. Paul was worried that those believers in Corinth were just primed and ready to believe any hogwash that came down the pike. He was worried about it. You go to Galatians 1.6. I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you 
in the grace of Christ to a different or another gospel. First century Galatians, which is not another, it's not another gospel. It's not any gospel at all. It's a fake, false, phony gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. Oh, but that was 2,000 years ago. That doesn't happen anymore, right? No, Jesus said it would be ramped up in the last days. It would be magnified and amplified. But even if we, Paul says, are an angel from heaven. Oh, there was a guy years ago who wrote a book called Angels on Assignment. Any of you ever hear that book? He claimed to have all these angelic encounters, and he had messages for us from those angels. And people bought it. They just lapped it up. Even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached. Again, if there's any question, if there's any doubt, go back to the Word. If what somebody says doesn't line up, doesn't sound right, doesn't make sense, if your anointing is kicking in, your discernment, just go back to the Word. Here it is. If it wasn't preached by the apostles, it's got to go. Get it? And I watched a great video by a guy. I didn't know he was a Calvary pastor. His church is called Hosanna. I think it's in Bellflower, California, somewhere out there. Younger guy, younger than me anyway. Not hard to do. And he was talking about modern worship, and he was evaluating one of the songs for its content. And he, and he pointed out that, you know, the problems with it, just like I spoke about a week or two ago, and uh, he's, like I said, he's quite a bit younger than me, so he's... A little bit older than millennial, perhaps, but pretty close. But he said, um, the problem is that people start looking for new ways to say something, but in the process of finding a new way to say it, they change the meaning. It's not the same. So what's more important? Saying the right thing, speaking the truth, even if it may sound a little outdated or old-fashioned, or finding a new way to say it and actually changing the whole meaning. That's why... Even though I use the new King James, I have friends, pastors, that insist on sticking with the old King James for that very reason. Because when you start messing around with words, oftentimes the whole meaning gets changed around. And that's why I like to cross-reference different translations. You should do that in your own studies. But again, when push comes to shove, when you're in doubt, go back to the King James. And if you find words that are hard to understand, then you can cross-reference those with other translations to get a more contemporary understanding. So that when he appears, we have confidence. So the indication here from John is that it would be possible as a believer when Jesus comes back and we stand before him that there could be some discomfort here. It would be the opposite would be of confidence would be uncertain and unsure. Although on the upside, following after a new gospel and a new Jesus seems exciting and refreshing. It's kind of like in marriage when you start to get bored and you start to look elsewhere, thinking that would be so exciting and refreshing to meet up with someone new. And by the way, being a Christian is like being married to God. Did you know that? We are the bride of Christ. But sin, when you start looking around for a different Jesus, a new Jesus, because you're bored with the old one, you're on the verge of committing spiritual adultery. Do you get it? 
In the end, what happens then, it leads to a lack of assurance regarding salvation and an uncertainty regarding one's eternal destination. Hence, so that when he appears, we have confidence. We're not standing there wondering, wow, am I in trouble? Am I going to make it? Did I blow it? You see, if Satan fails to prevent you from being saved, how many here in the morning can say that he failed? He failed, you've been saved. No, that's all? Nobody else? I was kind of looking for everybody to raise their hand. Sorry, I didn't mean to make it difficult for you this morning. Maybe we all need a little calisthenics here. If he fails to prevent you from being saved, then his goal becomes robbing you of your joy, your peace, and your confidence in Christ. If he can't keep you from getting saved, he's going to do everything he can to make sure you're the most miserable Christian who ever came along. John 10.10, Jesus said the thief, and he's talking about Satan, the thief comes but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly. So that when he appears, we have confidence and and not shrink away at his coming. It's like everybody's gathered around and there's Jesus and and you're kind of trying to get to the back of the crowd. Hope he doesn't see you. Maybe I just kind of slip in. Not shrink. What could cause us to pull away when we see Jesus face to face? 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed And this doesn't just apply to Timothy or to pastors. It applies to everybody. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Do you think that maybe it's important to God that we rightly divide the word of truth? That we don't mess with the truth of God's word? We don't play around with it and just kind of alter it here and there? Do you think that's important to God that we don't do that? But a lot of people are doing that. Do you know that? A lot of people are doing that. A workman, a servant of God, of Jesus Christ that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. See, God's not so concerned about your warm, fuzzy feelings and all your social justice warrior activity. I mean, it's good. We're called to feed the poor and help people. That's part of who we are as believers. But you know what? If we're not rightly dividing the word of truth, all that other stuff means nothing. Non-believers do the same thing, and maybe they, in some cases they do it better than we do. If you're not rightly dividing the word of truth, it doesn't matter what you do, how good of a person you are, in eternity it counts for nothing. Our failure to rightly divide or correctly handle, that's what one translation says, correctly handling the word of truth, handle with care, Right? If we do that in this life, it will result in finding ourselves, if we don't do it, it will result in us finding ourselves uncertain, unsure, and ashamed as we stand before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I say, let's not go there. What do you say? Finally, verse 29. We're a little bit over, but we're going to make it. I think this is cool. We're going to finish the chapter. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. If you know that he is righteous, and we do, right? He is righteous. Jesus is the gold standard of righteousness, doing what is right. 
He is our role model. Then John says, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And by the way, notice that phrase, practice righteousness. The more you practice something, the better you get, right? Now, we're not perfect and we never will be in this life. But if you see someone who acknowledges Jesus as Lord and Savior, and they're not perfect, but they're making a sincere effort to practice righteousness, it's a pretty safe bet that they are born of him. Amen? Let's stand. And by the way, I was going to share this article. I've forgotten we're out of time, but the heading is America Becoming Godless. The number of people who have no religion has risen 266%. One-third of the population in three decades. I told you there's a great falling away. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is so incredible, so amazing, so awesome, so dynamic, so powerful, so life-changing. And yet, Father, we, would, we could probably all honestly confess here this morning, maybe not for some, maybe there are some here who are truly, deeply, heavily into your word on a daily basis. That's how we all should be. But Lord, I'm pretty sure most of us are not as far into it as we should be. But we thank you for your grace, your love, and your mercy that you do guide us and direct us and you help us, you lead us into all truth. Lord, we thank you for the amazing, tremendous resource we have in your word. It is not just a book, it is supernatural. We're told in the book of Hebrews that it's alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, forgive us if we don't give your word the high place in our lives that we should. And Lord, there are some who, even though they may claim to give it a high place, they don't rightly divide it, they don't handle it correctly. And we pray that for those that that is true of, that you would bring them under the conviction of your Holy Spirit. We're told that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable, it's beneficial for us in a number of ways. Lord, help us to take full advantage of this tremendous resource you've given us. Help us to use that anointing, that indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. Paul was worried about believers being deceived. John was worried about believers being deceived. Jesus was worried about believers being deceived. Therefore, we should also be concerned about that, and we should guard our hearts and minds and do everything we can to not be deceived and to help others not fall into that trap as well. Thank you, God, for your strength, the power of your Holy Spirit living inside of us, Thank you for the forgiveness of sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We pray as we close, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, they would come today and make a commitment to Christ. They would become a true believer, a true disciple of Christ, born again by the Spirit of God. And for others who might be slipping away, that you'd bring them back into the fold. You went after the one lost sheep, Father, and we pray for any lost sheep today that they would come back into the fold. And Lord, whatever else is going on in the lives of our people here today, that you'd bring healing salvation, deliverance, comfort, strength. Lord, you are our resource for everything that we need. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.